Hi friends, it's so good to be with you, especially after a week like this, and I hope you survived well. And mostly, I hope that what we have to share today brings you a sense of grounding in the midst of it all. And for those of you who consider yourselves followers of Jesus, it's astounding to me how enduringly relevant his teachings are to our context. Yes, even to our current socio-cultural political moment. So, let's go. In the mid-1950s, there was a well-known psychological experiment done that was attempting to discover a better understanding on intergroup conflict and cooperation. In other words, how do people actually get along? How do they fight? And even, how do they evolve from cooperation to conflict and vice versa? The subjects of this experiment were a randomly selected group of 12-year-old boys who were divided into two equal teams by the researchers. There were controls set to make sure that the balance between the two groups were equal on as many measures as they could identify, and the two groups didn't know of each other's existence for the first few days of the experiment. The boys were transported to the Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma, where there was a Boy Scouts of America camp giving the name to this now famous field study, the Robbers Cave Experiment. During the first phase, the boys got to know each other and were encouraged to bond with one another through various activities and rituals like hiking and swimming, etc. They were then told to come up with team names. One group named themselves the Eagles, and the other group named themselves the Rattlers. On day four is when things got really interesting. During this phase, the two groups learned of each other's existence for the first time as they were told that there was going to be a competition stage. The two groups would compete in a series of activities, such as baseball or tug-of-war. Now here's what's fascinating. Having never met the other group, each group began deriding the other in othering terms. They would call the other group outsiders or even intruders. They were referred to as those boys at the other end of the camp. Coupled with this name-calling was an emotional escalation. Each group began to grow impatient for a challenge. And as the experiment progressed, they began to use derogatory language to describe the other and refused to even socialize with the other group during downtimes of play. The relationship between the two groups degraded further and further over the course of the experiment. Eventually, growing violent at one point, forcing the staff to shut down the interaction so as to avoid serious injury. Now, here's what else is interesting. While the conflict was rising, the boys began to speak very highly of themselves as much as poorly of the other. In other words, they did not have the introspection or ability to consider that their behavior was essentially identical to the other group, Yet, they were able to forcefully justify their behavior and condemn the other. Liliana Mason, in her book, Uncivil Agreement, writes about this experiment saying the following. The boys at Robbers Cave needed nothing but isolation and competition to almost instantaneously consider the other team to be dirty bums, to hold negative stereotypes about them, to avoid social contact with them, and to overestimate their own group's abilities. In very basic ways, group identification and conflict change the way we think about ourselves and our opponents. Now, while the experiment was about competition around limited resources, Mason uses this experiment to talk about the current state of our body politic in America. 
In short, through the mere adherence to a team identity, we succumb to the human psychological weakness of being unable to connect with reality, and therefore to connect with each other. We care more about our team winning than we do about the truth. And we care more about the other team losing than we care about the truth. Last week, Sidi, in her teaching on the parable, suggested that the parable of the soils may be a commentary on Jesus' own ministry, that there are some hearts who are rocky or thorny paths where the seeds of Jesus' teachings just simply cannot take root and grow. In other words, there are some people who simply cannot hear the truth of the matter. So when a radical revolutionary comes along, teaching things that don't comport with their already preconceived idea of what is right and true, they reject it. They are unable to become reoriented around the revolutionary message. Why? What is it that causes this hardness of heart? I'm going to propose that we consider carefully the study of the boys at the robber's cave as giving us a clue, and the teachings of Jesus in Luke as a phenomenally incredible remedy. The story of the robber's cave experiment is an illustration of the division and divides that so easily emerge out of what psychologists call group identity. And it is this very frailty of humanity, the tendency to create artificial groups and separations between us versus them, that Jesus speaks in to this next passage in our journey. In Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 20, we read, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is one of those passages that many readers turn their heads at. Like, why in the world would Jesus be apparently dissing his family? It is actually quite similar to other passages in the gospel accounts where Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. These family passages don't make sense to our sensibilities. And side note, it also might make you wonder when you hear Christian ministries talk about a biblical or Christian family, but that's for another time. Let's first say that from the gospel account of Matthew, we know that his mother is Mary, and his brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We also know from church history that his brother James becomes a convert, a follower of Jesus, and a leader in the early church movement out of Jerusalem. So, if that's the case, what is the fundamental teaching that Jesus is promoting here with this my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What is that all about? Well, you may not be surprised to hear that what Jesus is doing follows a long tradition, a long history within our faith, within our story of disrupting the groups and tribes that we create, of tearing down the walls of separation that create insiders and outsiders of attacking head-on the group identity bias that we understand from psychology. Jesus here is once again shifting the locus 
and the focus of identity and belonging to something far more universal and equal. Let me say that again. Jesus is once again shifting the locus and the focus of identity and belonging to something far more universal and equal. So let's take a look at that history and work our way through this long tradition back to Jesus's teachings. We can start with a concept called primogeniture. It is the basic idea that the firstborn is the one with prominence. In the ancient world, and still in some parts of the modern world today, the firstborn often gets exclusive rights to inheritance and is next in line to be the authority of the home. To be firstborn offers you privileges and status within your community, including the father's blessing. Now, you may recall that story of Jacob deceiving his father Isaac for the blessing that was supposed to go to his son Esau because Esau was the firstborn. If you read these stories carefully, however, those privileges are upended with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, none of whom were firstborn. The entire script of primogeniture, according to our faith tradition, is rendered through the narrative, as an irrelevant value set compared to the agenda that God was establishing through the descendants of Abraham. If you're going to create a new nation through a people group that is going to transform the world, in those days you do it through the firstborn. The fact that the founding fathers of our Jewish and Christian heritage are not firstborn is a huge element of the agenda that God is advancing. Those categories do not matter in the way that we think they matter. Other divisions, such as ethnicity and race, are also upended when you consider these stories. Abraham fathered his first child with Hagar, the Egyptian slave of Abraham and Sarah. The story goes that Sarah was not getting pregnant, and this is not a good sign in those days, considering that children were a sign of blessing from God but in addition, they were your 401k retirement plan. So Sarah offers Hagar to Abraham to conceive. But when Hagar does conceive, Sarah has a bitter attitude, very envious towards Hagar, and banishes her. This is partly because Hagar is an Egyptian, an outsider, a stranger. However, in the story, Hagar gets saved from isolation and her son gets a blessing. It is made all the more powerful when you consider that Hagar's name in Hebrew, Hagar, means the stranger. And Ishmael's name means God has heard or God has listened. Why is that in our story? Why is a foreign woman in the mix? The stories go on with Moses, who marries a Midianite woman, Zipporah who becomes a significant player. I'll spare you the details, or should I say I'll cut out the details, but Zipporah essentially saves Moses' life. Have you ever considered that the savior of Israel actually happens to be a Midianite woman who first saves Israel's savior? In addition to Zipporah, Moses marries a Cushite, an Ethiopian woman, who is hated by Moses' sister. And if you read some early commentators, 
This could be an early example of true, real racism in the Bible. Yet we find again that the Spirit is being woven through these stories, reaches beyond the boundary markers that we establish that separate peoples. The story of David with Bathsheba, a Hittite woman, another foreigner, yields a son who becomes king, Solomon, who would rule and be one of the wisest people in Israel's history. And we are to this day reading his Proverbs as pearls of wisdom. By the way, just a note to you Christians out there, please do not call the David and Bathsheba story a biblical love story. Again, that's for another time. And many of you have heard the word patriarchal, but there's another concept I think Danielle has talked about in the Bible called patrilineal, in which the bloodlines that carry the family authority and blessing are the legitimacy in the community. It flows through the father's line. That is part of the reason why the genealogy in Matthew leads to Joseph, the husband of Mary, rather than through Mary's line, because it is Joseph's line that matters. However, a close reading of this genealogy, a passage of the story that many of us skip over, yields four women, five if you include Mary, and three of those women are foreign women. Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, Uriah, the Hittite. Yes, these women, not men, and foreign women at that, they too are a part of the Jesus story. There's many more, but all of these examples are there as if to say, oh, you think it's important that only the male line is the one that matters? Think again. Oh, you think it's only Israelite blood that matters? Think again. Oh, you think it's only the powerful that matters? Think again. Each of these stories and the entire scope of the Jesus movement is grounded and rooted in the tradition of tearing down the artificial barriers that separate us. It is to communicate through literature, through narrative, through story, that people may think of you as a foreigner. People create others and outsiders, but God thinks of you as a central part of God's story. People think of you as having less value or that you don't matter because of your gender or your race, but God thinks of you as of equal value, of equal worth, dignity, and in fact declares that the work of God actually does not go on in our world without you. People think of you as somehow less dignified because of your class, by how much money you make, or whether or not you're on the in crowd. But God says that you are dignified because you are created in the image and likeness of God. And when anyone looks at you, they are peering into the face of God. I started this message with the robber's cave experiment and how tribes fracture us and cause us to think highly of ourselves and prejudicially of the other, whoever that other may be. And that tribalism leads us to care more for our win and their loss than about the dignity of all people. What I didn't share with you is that one of the concluding findings of that study was to inquire about the opposite. We know that tribal identities create conflict, but what creates cooperation? What, if anything, could bring people together, even if they had once had disdain for each other? Is there anything that could mend the divide? 
heal the fracture, dismantle the tribal boundaries, and unify the two groups? The answer is yes. Yes, there is. The technical psychological term is common superordinate goals. What they simply mean by that is working together for a common purpose. Once the researchers gave the boys an aim, an agenda, something above and beyond that was transcendent to the group identity that they had formed, they were able to come together, cooperate, and work with one another for a better world. And here, my friends, is where Jesus' teaching is so brilliant. Do you want to know who my mother and my brothers are? Do you want to know who my family is, says Jesus? It is those, catch this, who hear the word of God and do it. Did you catch that? Family, kin, those who are in according to Jesus, are those who commit themselves to a common superordinate goal, who are willing to work towards a common purpose, a vision that transcends my particular group identity. And so, for followers of Jesus, being family has nothing to do with whether or not we're related whether or not we're blood, whether or not we're in the same class, political party, ethnic or racial group, or gender. For followers of Jesus, being family is merely a matter of taking up the cause, of healing a fractured world, of rescuing the lost, healing the sick, bringing comfort to the lonely. It is those who want to serve and care for this garden, this earth that we've been given. It is those who care enough to want to love, not just our own, but our neighbor and even our enemy, to the point that they are no longer our enemy. Jesus' phrase, do the will of God, is Jesus' vision of humanity working together for a common purpose. This is what makes family. This is what makes us in and kin. This is what makes the Jesus movement so transformational. Jesus is calling us to common superordinate goals, the working together for common purpose. And not just a common purpose, God's common purpose. So, what Jesus is doing here is continuing to advance the long tradition in our faith history of showing just how foolish we are to create divisions and divides that fracture our common humanity. This is the theological foundation of why sexism, racism, misogyny, ableism, and every other type of chauvinism is bad. It deteriorates God's beautiful creation. It dismantles the bonds of our common humanity and distorts our understanding of the world, puffing up our sense of self and deprecating our care for each other. Tribalism, nationalism, and exceptionalism is anti-kingdom. It is anti-Jesus. It is anti-love. I don't think I have to tell you our world is deeply fractured. Here at home, we see this played out in our national election. We don't have the same reality. We are being driven to the worst of our human impulses by social media, algorithms, 
We are more polarized, uncivil, contemptuous, and disdainful as we've ever been. And all that is being driven by people in powerful positions who see divisions as their way of maintaining power. And another thing, sorry, Christians are guilty of the same tribalism, the same group identity thinking that has plagued people from the very beginning. Many of us, metaphorically speaking, maybe literally speaking, are 12-year-old boys who are fighting for our own team. Except Christians add to the tribal divisions the categories of beliefs or doctrines. If this church doesn't believe the same thing I believe about baptism, human sexuality, the Trinity, the Bible, the second coming, human depravity, or whatever the doctrine might happen to be, then they're not Christians. They're clearly not a part of us. And they are dangerous. They have now become the other. Most recently, and perhaps most painfully, Christians are being identified by their partisan political convictions and alignment, which is a whole other level of this mess because it now adds ideology to tribal identity. May I propose to us that if we are following a moral compass that is driven more by our belief systems, Facebook posts, or partisan politics, we are supporting the very structures that Jesus came to eliminate. I am convinced that if those of us who identified as Christians actually lived as Christ taught, did the will of God, as we find in the biblical narrative, obeyed the teachings and ethics of Jesus, that has the potential to heal the fractured wounds and contentious divides that are plaguing our body politic right now. Jesus said so himself just a few chapters back. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Friends, it is my urging and my prayer that more people would feel the move of the Spirit of God to actually do what Jesus taught us, to love our neighbor, the stranger, and our enemy, to tear down the walls of separation, to humble ourselves, to take the log out of our own eye, and cease being judgmentally condemning of one another, to seek truth and grace and extend compassion, and to do justice. And if we do these things, then according to Jesus, we are in and can. We are part of the family of God. And that, my friends, is a family that is available to all. This is a universal family. There are no restrictions. No gender restrictions, ethnic or racial restrictions, no class or economic restrictions, no birthright or genetic restrictions. This is an invitation to all. So, I'll end with this question. Who is your family? Who is your kin? Well, if they're the ones who simply believe like you do, or are the same race, ethnicity, or culture as you, or who vote in the same way as you, you've done the opposite of Jesus' call. You've simply created an artificial tribe, a group, a fragmenting of humanity. But if you join the hands of those who are working for love, 
compassion, justice and mercy, and ultimately care in this world, then you've joined the Jesus family and you've opened up and widened your own family, your kin to the people of God. And that, that's a beautiful and brilliant vision of humanity. I would like to invite you now to the table where we remember and commemorate Jesus' sacrifice for this vision of a common humanity. And as we take the elements together, may we be reminded of the body that was broken due to our fracturing and the blood that was spilled because of our tribalism. And may we remember the redemption that came as a result of Jesus' power over even this grave. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.